This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, cannibalism, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops Season 2, Episode 5. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, well, the news is racist, allegedly. (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple Mm -hmm. of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. That's right. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about cannibal killers. Happy Thanksgiving. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be covering Peter Bryan, an English guy who killed several people. And as a bonus, Omaima Nelson, Mm. who was not a serial killer, but she did murder her husband and allegedly ate part of him. Pass the potatoes. Hey, yes, please. Oh, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. I just wanted to say happy Thanksgiving to all of the uh, American Loopsters out there. Yeah. And to you, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> and to all the Loopsters in other countries, happy Thursday. 
Hope it's a great day for all of you. Yes, we do. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, shout out, by the way, to all of those affected by the wildfires in California who may be displaced over the holidays or who have lost loved ones. Um, shout out to all the first responders. Um, I just wanted to point out, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I went to college in Thousand Oaks where that uh, crazy ass shooting was. Um, used to go to that club every Thursday, every Wednesday, by the way. Holla. Um, oh, wow. um my thoughts and prayers are with everyone affected by these fires and the recent mass shooting. Um, so yeah. from Fruit Loops to you guys. Yeah, definitely. Yes, absolutely. We are going to get into some of our listener letters. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just wanted to give a huge shout out to Sue and Elizabeth, who became patrons this week. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's going to help us uh, pay for all our our overhead costs for the uh, Mm -hmm. website and pod hosting and all that stuff. So thank you so, so much. You guys are everything. Thank you. Yes, you are. And I also wanted to read a message that we got from Renee on Facebook. Uh, Mm. She said, thank you, ladies, for the awesome podcast. Love you both and the laughs, but also the information on what would otherwise be buried stories. I'd love to see a pic of you two to have faces with the voices. Much love and respect. And much love and respect to you, too, Renee. Amen, Miss Renee. So uh, we don't want to post our photos because we kind of want to remain slightly anonymous. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Wendy and I talked about it and we thought we might post photos of our celebrity lookalikes. Mm -hmm. I think Wendy looks like Denai Guerrera, Mm -hmm. who plays uh, Michonne on The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's absolutely gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) She was also in Black Panther. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She's in Black Panther. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I look like any celebrity, really. Um, I've been told that I look like Clea Duvall, but uh, not not exactly. So, of course, I became obsessed with my celebrity lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> and so I found a website that supposedly will find your your celebrity look like. It's called twinning.popsugar.com. Mm-hmm. I love those online quizzes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. a sucker. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I put my picture in it a few times and I got uh, pretty mixed results. I was hoping that one celebrity would come up more than others but i just got a whole bunch of different celebrities yeah they give you five matches each time and every single one of them was different (laughs) every time (laughs) so i got jillian harris who was apparently on the bachelor i don't know who she is uh Hmm. janine garofalo i can see that uh i think that's probably the closest okay abby jacobson margaret cho interesting yunjin kim china chow i got a lot of asians wow uh jasmine jones she played peggy schuyler and mariah reynolds in hamilton oh yeah and ashley madakwe i'm not not sure how that's pronounced madakwe okay so um, I think I think I got a lot of Asians because I have almond shaped eyes. Oh, oh <laughs> like okay. you must be Asian. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I don't I don't look like a celebrity. <laughs> I just look like a normal person. 
<laughs> I, well, I think I think the Janine Garofalo one and the um, who's that other white lady that you've said? Claire Claire. Duvall. <laughs> yeah. Clay Duvall. I've been told by uh, more than one person I look like Clay Duvall, and and uh, um, I do uh, to an extent. I mean, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I look exactly like her. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're hard to duplicate. Yes, yeah, that's true. I'm an original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think the results. That's wild that you got such mixed results. But I, I again, know. I can. Oh, I can see all of those in you, by the way. You look like so many famous people or that they look like you. Um, so I usually get uh, uh, people tell me that I look like Whoopi Goldberg. So You do not look like Whoopi Goldberg. It's just because well, uh, I have dreadlocks and I'm a black lady and we all look alike. Oh, yeah. So obviously you look like Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, but uh Marcus on um, Instagram sent us a really, really nice message. He said, I stumbled upon this podcast two weeks ago and I'm hooked. I love the banter and the foul language. Fuck yes. Uh, I love the subject matter. Have you guys considered a live episode? Second, I have two suggestions for potential episodes. Um, Look up the Leicester Street murders and the case of Tony V. Carruthers, um, both which took place in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. Shout out to you all in Memphis. Um, Both are chilling. The Carruthers case will blow your mind. Uh, Thanks, ladies. And by the way, thank you so much for the message and the case ideas. Uh, We have a running document of true crime perps of color and uh, a case episode ideas um, living document that we um, keep uh, over here at Fruit Loops headquarters. <laughs> Fruit Loops HQ. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate the ideas. Um, and guess what? Both of those are going. Uh, they're they're wild cases. Did you did you look them up, or have you heard of them? Best? I haven't had a chance to look them up yet. No. Oh me! Oh my! Um, crazy. They're, they're pretty crazy. So they are definitely on the list. Um, also, we have talked about kind of doing a live episode, but we talk about really sensitive subjects with abandon and we also want to keep kind of anonymous somewhat. So a live show makes that kind of tough. So uh, it is on the list, but if you guys have any ideas of where we should do a live show, <laughs> we'll come with, we'll come with our masks and, uh, and, and maybe get it done. So, um, well, uh, thank you for those lovely letters, listeners. Now it's time for a quick dance break. <laughs> Just kidding. A quick (laughs) ad break, and we'll get into the story when we come back. (laughs) So we would like to invite any listeners who have a business to advertise to do it with us. For more information, please email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com or check out our website at fruitloopspod.com. So, uh, all right, let's, let's dive into the subject. Take it away, Ben. All right. We've got a double whammy for you today. It's Thanksgiving and we will be filling our bellies with turkey and sweet potato pie. So we thought we'd tell you about some cannibalistic killers of color. Mm -hmm. It's like turkey and sweet potato pie for your ears. Hell yeah, it is. (laughs) So first (laughs) up is Peter Bryan, a black British guy with a history of mental illness who killed people by beating them in the head with a hammer and cooking his friend's brain in a frying pan. Second, we are talking about Omaima Nelson, an Egyptian model who lived with her husband in California. She killed and dismembered his body when she mixed his remains with Thanksgiving leftovers and cooked up his ribs with barbecue sauce and then ate them. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, cannibal killers. Cannibals okay. have always existed throughout human history, according to anthropologists. Cannibalism was used as a a cure for overpopulation, a means of survival during famine, or even a way to contend with grief. Uh, nearly every culture has consumed human beings for some reason at one point in time. Beth A. Conklin, uh, an associate professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University, studied the Wari, a group of native people who live in the Amazon rainforest and who practiced an elaborate form of cannibalism until the 1960s, when government workers and missionaries forced them to abandon the practice. Y'all just going to come in there and have them stop practicing their own culture? Come on. Yeah, missionaries kill all the fun. (laughs) (laughs) According to Conklin, the Wari are unusual because they practice two distinct forms of cannibalism in in warfare and at funerals. Uh, But the two practices were very different and had very different meanings. Eating enemies was an intentional expression of anger and disdain for the enemy. But at funerals, when they consumed members of their own group who died naturally, it was done out of affection and respect for the dead person and as a way to help survivors cope with the grief. Okay, I don't know how that works, but (laughs) that just makes me a little sick to my stomach to think about it right now. So, although cannibalism has been found in all cultures, uh, what's not so common are murderers who kill for sport and then eat their victims. According to Dr. Eric Hickey, professor of forensic psychology at Walden University, of the estimated 2,000 2000 active serial killers in the United States, between five and ten are probably cannibals as well. Hickey says that uh, cannibals are almost never true psychopaths. Psychopaths have trouble making meaningful connections with other human beings. But cannibal killers, they tend to develop extreme attachments to people and suffer from neediness and low self-esteem. Cannibals tend to feel really insecure and can't have normal relationships, Hickey says. Eating their victims gives them a sense of power because their victims can never leave. Mm, interesting. Because cannibals can have emotional attachments, their their victims' deaths are usually quick, wanting to spare the other person the pain. That's nice. They're not interested <laughs> in their victims' suffering like Ted Bundy was. They're not looking for sadism. They simply want access to the body, says Hickey. What's more, cannibalism in these cases is usually a sexual act. Whenever killers eat other people, they're acting out of fantasy about relationships and intimacy, Hickey says. They start experimenting with sexual fantasies about voyeurism and necrophilia, and as they're fantasizing, they explore that behavior. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see people jump from killing to eating. It starts with watching people sleep, then drugging victims, then you want to be with someone who's buried or unconscious, and it just progresses from there. <laughs> you know, like, it, like it does. <laughs> Yeah, as one does, right? Right. Everything's human. (laughs) So what do humans taste like? That's the perennial question, right? I'm dying to know. (laughs) From Smithsonian Magazine, uh, they said beef would be the closest visual equivalent of a human filet or rump roast. The red color can be traced to the presence of richly pigmented protein, 
called myoglobin, and more specifically, hemes, the chemical compounds that myoglobin uses to bind and store oxygen as a fuel source for active muscles. According to uh, Texas A&M University's Department of Animal Science, pork, lamb, and beef average 2, 6, and 8 milligrams of myoglobin per gram of muscle, respectively. The concentration of myoglobin in human muscle tissue is pretty high, even relative to pigs, sheep, and cows, coming in at, a, at close to 20 milligrams per gram of certain muscle fibers, or a 2% concentration of myoglobin. Ooh. But according to the testimony of people who have actually eaten other people, the taste of human meat is not like beef. Both serial killers and Polynesian cannibals have described human meat as being most akin to pork, but not all cannibals agree. Some have said it tastes like veal. Now, I I think I've mentioned this on a past um, podcast. Um, there is a storytelling podcast. I think it's called uh, Snap, maybe Snap Judgment. Oh, Snap Judgment, yeah. On Halloween, they do scary ones. And this one episode was of a girl whose dad was, she believed was a cannibal. And her dad was like, come down, come eat this lovely roast I just made. And he was like, it's going to be the most delicious thing you've ever tasted in your life. And it was. And she was like, I think my dad fed me a human human flesh. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, while I was doing the research for this, I remembered watching a show on Investigation Discovery called True North. Um, it's like mm-hmm. a four part story where about a couple who who murdered a guy and then uh, afterwards they threw a barbecue and the people who attended the barbecue said that the meat that was served didn't taste like beef, that it tasted like nothing they'd ever had before. And later on, though, when they found out that they killed this guy, they they suspected that they'd eaten human flesh. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Thanks for coming to our lovely barbecue, everybody. <laughs> so uh, nine out of 10 cannibals agree human flesh tastes like pork. Mm. But like any meat, the flavor of human would probably depend a great deal on how it's prepared and what cut is sampled. I suppose that's true. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Uh, so our first subject today is Peter Bryan, the British guy. So let's get into some stats. Uh, so anyway, Peter Bryan's crimes took place in London, London town, England. Um, by the way, there are certain uh, cities. When I hear the name, I feel like I have to sing them and London is one of them. Anyway, so, sorry. Uh, he killed three people from 1993 to 2004. His motive was cannibalism, but his M.O. was hitting in the head with a hammer and strangulation. Uh, his victims were uh, Nisha Sheth. She was a shop assistant. Um, Brian Cherry was 43. That was actually uh, the killer's friend. Um, Richard Loudwell was 59, and he was a fellow patient of Peter uh, Peter Bryan's in the um, mental hospital. And uh, Peter Bryan was sentenced to closed psychiatric confinement in 1993. Then he got released in 2004 and just hours later killed two more people. Um, he was sentenced to life in prison in uh, March of 2005. 
All right. So um, Brian was born in London on October 4th, 1969, the youngest of seven children of immigrant parents from Barbados. He attended Shaftesbury Junior School in Forest Gate before attending Trinity Secondary School in Canningtown. London Town. Uh, Brian <laughs> left school at 14 or 15 and obtained employment at a clothes a clothes clothing stall, um, later moving on to teach cooking lessons at his local soup kitchen. In 1987, Peter Bryan lived at the Flying Angel Custom House in East London. During that the time that he lived there, uh, Brian attempted to throw another resident from a six-floor window. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there was a struggle, and his intended victim escaped leaving Brian with a deep gash on his head. The attack by Brian was totally unprovoked. That's terrifying. The victim was questioned by the police about the gash on Brian's head, but no further action was taken by the police against the victim or Brian. Then in 1993, Brian, then age 23, was working as a shop assistant. He became obsessed over Nisha Sheth, the 20-year-old daughter of the shop's owners, while working at her parents' clothes shop. But when she got him sacked, uh, or in American, <laughs> fired for stealing, <laughs> he took his revenge by bludgeoning her to death as she was talking on the phone. Brian also left her younger brother with serious head injuries. Yikes. Yeah. An hour later, Bri- Brian reportedly, yeah, <laughs> reportedly high on cannabis. <laughs> All right, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, when I read that, I was like, um, I don't know. It just sounded so, so like, like an old person wrote it. Like, and like an old, an old white person wrote it for sure. He was high on the weed. He was taking the weed. That marijuana. Oh, God. <laughs> In any case, he was reportedly uh, high on the weed. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he jumped from the third floor balcony of a building in Battersea in an apparent suicide attempt. He survived and admitted the manslaughter of Nisha on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Um, I, I believe that means that he, he said he was insane at the time. Okay. And he was locked up in the Rampton Maximum Security Psychiatric Unit without limit of time. By February uh, 2001, the nursing staff thought that he had made considerable progress in regard to his behavior, attitude, maturity, relationships, anger, and insight. Brian was transferred from Rampton in June 2001 to the John Howard Center after a six-month trial leave project agreed by the home office. He was then released into the care of a psychiatrist and social worker. After applying to a mental health review tribunal in 2002, he was moved to the Riverside Hostel in North London, where he was allowed door keys and could come and go as he pleased. <laughs> London town. <laughs> in October 2003, the psychiatrist and social worker noted continued improvement in his behavior and mental state and talked of plans for a move for more independent accommodation. In November 2003, his mental health social worker wrote to the home office stating that matters had settled down and there were no further concerns. Uh, 
and it was thought that he did not present any major risks. It was later said that the psychiatrist and social worker looking after Brian were inexperienced and had never worked with a convicted killer before. That's not good. No. Uh, In January 2004, social workers applied uh, for the transfer of Brian to low support accommodation. Instead, he was transferred to an open psychiatric ward at Newham General Hospital after allegations that he had indecently assaulted a 16-year-old girl close to the hostel. Um, We read that uh, he was caught blowing raspberries on (laughs) the 16-year-old. Yeah, just going... (laughs) Oh! Oh! It's like kind of motorboating her stomach. (laughs) Motorboating her stomach. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) On uh, February 17th, 2004, he walked out of the mental health unit and went straight to a DIY shop, which I assume is like uh, Home Depot or something. Um, Home Depot or Harbor Freight. Yeah, something like that. So Mm -hmm. he bought a claw hammer, a Stanley knife, and a screwdriver, and then went to kill Brian Cherry, his his friend. (laughs) I, I, I have some friends and, uh, I've never considered killing any of them. No. Just me. No. Like, yeah, that's where me and Peter Bryan differ. So Mr. Cherry, he was 43 years old, was described as a nice man, but lonely with few friends. At around 7.15 PM, his friend, Nicola Newman, let herself into his flat. That's what British people call apartments, and noticed a strong smell of disinfectant. Peter Bryan then emerged from the living room, bare-chested and holding a knife to announce, Brian is dead. <laughs> just, just announce. Brian is dead. <laughs> I feel like the like, like, like Hamilton song is coming on. Yeah. Uh, but I can't, can't think of which one would fit. The, the Reynolds pamphlet. Thing. Have you read this? Peter Brian killed his friend. Have you read oh. this? <laughs> oh man! Oh man! I'm so oh, okay. We have to stick to the story. Okay, what's next? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Nicola, who was the friend who dropped by. Uh, didn't believe Peter Bryan um, and tried to look into the room. And when she did, she saw Mr. Cherry lying naked on the floor and could see one of his arms on the floor clearly separated from the rest of his body. She said clearly Clearly separated. separated. Uh, yep. That clearly that arm is separated from the body. Clearly. No longer attached. No. Nope. No, ma'am. Uh, well, there's a, I saw a picture online and I, I, we'll put this on the website, but there was a, um, not a, not an actual picture of the scene, but like so a, like a, sim- a, a police yeah. drawing or, uh, or uh, yeah, so, something for the court. Yeah. I saw that one too. <laughs> so you get a very clear picture that yes, she is accurate in her description that the arm was clearly <laughs> separated from Police were called after neighbors heard screams. The police arrived to find Brian standing in the hallway in uh, the dark with bloodstained hands, jeans, and trainers. Trainers. Uh, oh, sneakers. Sneakers, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> weapons, including a hammer, were found strewn around the flat. 
Mr. Cherry's skull had been smashed open with at least 24 blows from the hammer and his head been oh had my. been yeah his head had been partly sawn off. Oh no. His right leg and both arms had been hacked off and blood was splattered all over the living room. Get ready to hold on to your wigs in the kitchen. Officers found a small amount of meat in a frying pan next to an open tub of butter. The meat was part of Cherry's brain. More brain tissue was heaped on a plate next to a knife and fork on the draining board. Brian told officers he had killed Mr. Cherry after the victim opened his door and then said, I ate his brain with butter. It was really nice. Okay, so I'm glad that you told us about cannibalism in the beginning and how um, it's it's a, a sick form of intimacy. Yes. So I this think, dude was yeah. Yeah. So he really loved his friend in a very not okay way. Yes, and That's I think awesome. that Jeffrey Dahmer was the same. He he wanted mm-hmm. uh he wanted to keep the people with him all the time. So that mm-hmm. that was his way of keeping them with with him. He would eat them. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, of course. Yes. Uh he <laughs> absolutely as one does. Yes. Uh, he later added, <laughs> "I would have done someone else if you hadn't come along. I wanted their souls." Uh, Brian later admitted he was comforted by the smell of blood and described the victim's arms and legs as tasting like chicken, Mm-mm-mm. chicken and waffles. <laughs> So good. Anyway. (laughs) So Brian was taken to Pentonville jail, but he told a member of staff that he wanted to kill a warder and eat their nose. Hmm. Prison officers had to use riot shields when unlocking his cell in case of attack. Wow. That kind of reminds me of uh, Hannibal Lecter. Now, is Hannibal Lecter a real person? No. Or is it just the movie? It's just a movie. Okay, okay, okay. He was based on several different people, but he no, he was not a real person. All right. Thank you, OG of True Crime. <laughs> <clears throat> now, on April 15th, 2004, tax day in the United States, <laughs> uh, Brian was remanded to Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital after appearing in court over Mr. Cherry's death. But later, doctors believed he had settled and could be transferred to a medium risk ward let's see what happens next (laughs) nothing good (laughs) not good richard loudwell aged 60 was waiting trial for the murder of an 82 year old woman and was a patient on the same ward and on april 25th 2004 at around 6 10 p.m Three members of staff heard two bangs coming from the dining room and found Mr. Loudwell lying on the floor next to a table and chair. His face was covered in blood and there was a strangulation mark around his neck. He eventually died on June 5th. When Brian was found, he admitted he had tried to strangle Mr. Loudwell with a piece of cord and smashed his head on the floor. Boy, Brian told doctors, I get these urges, you see. I've had these urges ever since I saw him. He's the bottom of the food chain, old and haggard. He looked like he'd had his innings. I was just waiting for my chance to get at him. I wanted to kill him and eat him. I didn't have much time. If I did, I'd have tried to cook him and eat him. All right, then. Um, uh, so you were just reading that, and I was, I was hearing it in my head in a British in a, accent. In a British, I can try it, try it again in a British accent. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's okay. Uh, I, when I was a, a kid, I was obsessed with England. Uh-huh. And I spoke in a British accent for a whole year. Uh, there was somebody else who did that too. I, I heard it on a podcast that it was like on This American Life or something. A guy had, when he was a kid, he, he thought he was British. And so he spoke in a <laughs> British accent. Yeah. What is, I, I don't know. If, it's like, what's that? Rachel Dolezal believes that she's black, black but she's, a real, yeah. she's really white. She's white. Yeah. Uh, and you couldn't, you couldn't convince me that I was not from England. I, I like had a whole story. I, I, I was, I, I was like, I'm so ridiculous. Anyway, I couldn't stop talking with a British accent for a whole year and it was terrible for my family. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, asked if wanting to eat people was normal. He replied, of course it's normal. Cannibalism is normal. It's been here for centuries. If I was on the street, I'd go for someone bigger, you know, for the challenge. That's pretty good. There you go. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I can't do accents. I'm not very good at accents. So um, I'm oh, just going to read it normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, let me try. Let me try it and we'll see how it goes. Okay. okay, let's see. I felt excited when I attacked him. I wanted to shag him when he was alive and also when he was dead. I wanted to cook him, but there was no time, nor was there access to cooking equipment i briefly considered eating him raw Ooh. i think that's more of a posh accent he probably had more like a cockney accent and i don't know how to do that one yeah like a idris elba kind of accent yeah you know, you know like oh hey mate yes you know yes yeah uh by the way, I was going to say, call the folks up at Downton Abbey because Beth is here. <laughs> Beth is out here, everybody. <laughs> uh, so uh, he named another patient as his next target and added, it's something like a ritual. I must be becoming a serial something. <laughs> and according to the prosecutor, Brian believed that the human body was a natural food source that made him stronger. Whoa. He told one psychiatrist he hoped to kill eight people because he wanted to be a serial killer. Well, um, he already was. So <laughs> Yeah, so he didn't have to. <laughs> so where are they now? Peter Bryan was sentenced to life in prison on March 15th, 2005. He was given a whole life sentence and will never be released again. A Dr. Martin Locke carried out a series of interviews with the killer. Bryan told the psychiatrist, You look like a brainy chap and you are quite slim. I think I could take you. Dr. Locke later said that he was the most dangerous man I have ever assessed. Did you hear my scary gulp? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did they used to say on Scooby-Doo? Um, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> zoinks. Yeah, zoinks. That is, that is scary, yeah. <laughs> so uh, now we're going to get into what made him snap and also our takeaways. Um, I think that uh, Peter Bryant was just... Why, he was just wired in this way. Um, he was uh, a, a schizophrenic cannibal. And I'm not sure if cannibal is a mental illness, but schizophrenia certainly is. Um, but like any other illness, it can be treated. Um, and after he killed his first victim and was released from the psychiatric hospital, his medication was reduced and um, he began to self-medicate. And obviously not 
very healthy ways. Um, and it made his severe mental illness even worse. Um, and many news outlets blamed his mental health providers for the murders, essentially saying a series of blunders by them led to the opportunity for Brian to commit these crimes. Yeah, but I also read that he was really good at hiding his illness and his psychotic urges. So I think it was like the perfect storm. You know, uh, he had the psychiatrist in the social worker who were not very experienced, had never worked with killers before. Uh, apparently, uh, Peter Bryan was pretty good at hiding things. So, But I don't know. I just got a feeling that he seemed to get obsessed with thoughts and uh, felt the need to follow through with them. I mean, he he got mm-hmm. out of, he was released and then immediately he went and killed his friend and ate him. So like it, it was something he'd been thinking right. about for a long time. And as soon as he got out, he did it. And I mm-hmm. don't know a lot about schizophrenia, um, but I did want to mention that media coverage relating to violent acts by people with schizophrenia reinforces the public perception that schizophrenics are all violent. Um, and when mm-hmm. something, That's not true. yeah. And when something like this happens, it's sensational. Of course we want to know all about it and there's a lot of news coverage, but most people with schizophrenia mm-hmm. do not hurt other people. They are more of a danger to themselves than others. And they are actually more likely to be victims than perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Um, and this mm-hmm. guy was a pretty rare bird. It seems like he had intrusive thoughts, but rather than upsetting him, which is the usual reaction for someone with a mental Ill- illness, uh, these kind of thoughts excited mm-hmm. him and he wanted or maybe even needed to follow through on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to your point about um, uh, how most uh, schizophrenics are, are, are not violent, um, I listened to a podcast and I wish I could... It might have been Reveal. And um, they interviewed a woman who is a lawyer and a PhD. And she's really old. And it took her maybe like 15 years to get all of her schooling done because she had to keep stopping um, because she was hearing voices. Oh, wow. um, She delusions and uh this was in like the the 70s and 80s she didn't know what was happening to her but she would um when she realized i'm losing it she would get get medicated and then she would continue with her schooling and then um the voices would come back and then she would have to get her medication adjusted and now she's an advocate for people with um schizophrenia and other um mental illnesses but um it was just a really interesting story and it and it just drives home this point that um, schizophrenics are, are people too, and are perfectly, perfectly capable of existing in society. And, um, maybe the media should do a little more coverage on, on that, not just the, yeah. the scary stuff. So not just the, uh, cannibal murderers and whatever the things that people. Right. Right. Well, and, and you know what, we, we, so we say the news is racist, but really the news is capitalist it's a business yeah yeah so they, they want to cover stuff that people leaves, are gonna yeah 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 people watch and then they can they can generate you know income from so right. um so that was our first uh case now we're gonna get into our second bonus thanksgiving day subject um miss omaima nelson and she is not a serial killer but an egyptian american Uh, and model who was convicted of murdering her husband, Bill Nelson. 
So I'm going to get into some stats here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so not much on Omaima because she only killed one person, uh, but she did eat him. Her husband, he was 56 years old, Bill Nelson. Uh, he was a white guy. And boy, did she go overboard. The crime occurred in Costa Mesa, California in 1991. Um, and spousal rape was illegal in all 50 states in the U.S. two years later. So I'm not sure when it was made illegal in California, but um, those are the stats. All right. So Omaima Ari Nelson was born in 1968 in Egypt and brought up in what has been described as a squalid section of Cairo. By her account, she was the victim of almost unimaginable abuse as a child when she was molested, beaten, and forced to undergo a, a circumcision, a mutilation of the female genitalia. So um, get ready, because uh, I feel like I need to explain female circumcision, or uh, aka female genital mutila- mutilation, aka FMG. Uh, it's done a couple of ways, typically by cutting off all of or part of a girl's external genitalia. Some cultures go a step further and surgically um, or using uh, cauterizing material to close up the the, the vagina, the, the hole itself. Wow. Um, the practice is quite common. It is illegal in the United States and many other countries, but many young girls with family in the Middle East, Asia, um, or Africa, um, uh, the practice is accepted. And, you know, uh, those girls may go away for the summer um, to get cut. And, uh, you know, their parents may have arranged for the procedure to have been done and the girls don't get any say. Um, Google it. It's it's horrific. Um, the, the practice makes future sex not pleasurable and painful for many women. Um, it's also traumatizing because somebody is holding you down. Um, again, uh, without anesthesia. Um, so uh, a couple sources that introduced me to the topic, first of all, Oprah did it, did an episode about it in the 2000s. Very, uh, very traumatizing. Um, also Stuff Mom Never Told You and The Heart Podcast did really great episodes about it. It's, it's, it's painful watching it. I can't imagine what these little, little girls, like it's, you know, from zero, age zero to 15 have yeah, to undergo horrible. this practice. Yeah, it is horrific. It's it's not always sanitary. It's not often done by a medical professional. And um, after I got into the weeds about the subject, I did not sleep well for several months. Um, but until we eradicate the practice, because people are not, they're not stopping doing it. Um, communities are still not willing to give this practice up. So I'm just hoping if those communities want to still do it, that they can do it in a way that's safer and less painful for these young girls. Yeah. It's, uh, so awful. I'll get off my yeah. It's awful. Yeah. I'm telling you. I remember hearing about it and I really, I, uh, it upset me so much. I couldn't, uh, I didn't want to know any more about it. And it's like, just the bare bare bones about it just upset me so much i couldn't couldn't listen to it anymore it's it's tough for sure and you know what i i was so upset that i donated to a stop fmg um uh charity um i thought you know 
just like retweeting stuff and being upset and like, you know, like sitting in the fetal position isn't going to help. Right, so right. I, I did. And you can just go online and, and look for stop female, uh, female genital mutilation websites. Oh, and, good to know. Um, I didn't even know that was out there. So good to know. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's lots of organizations who are trying to stop this or at least make the practice safer if people are going to still do this. Right. Still be doing this. So. All right. Tangent. All right. <laughs> Back to the story. And uh, <laughs> in 1986, Omaima married an American man and immigrated to the United States when she was just 18 years old. Uh, they then divorced and she had trouble getting by. She was alone. She didn't have a great command of English and she didn't have a lot of marketable skills. She did find jobs as a nanny and a house cleaner. She has been described as an exotic beauty. And if you see pictures, that's totally she true. Is, yeah. She was able to find some part-time work as a model. By her own account, she went through a series of dysfunctional and abusive relationships with other men before she met Bill Nelson. Uh, by prosecution accounts, she traded on her sexuality for rent and cars from a long overlapping line of men, most of them older. By the way, fuck you, prosecutor. <laughs> I just think it's for an older white guy to be like, this beautiful woman was using these, these yeah. men. And how, how, come on, get out of yeah. here. <laughs> so In October 1991, when she was 23, she met Bill Nelson, a 56 year old pilot in a bar while playing pool. Bill was originally from mm -hmm. Texas, and he has been described as a sort of Southern gentleman type, prone to wearing cowboy mm -hmm. boots, jeans, and big belt buckles. You know, those kind of guys. Oh, yeah. My lady wood just went up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, he'd run into some trouble with the law when he was caught using his plane to smuggle marijuana. Whoa. He was smuggling the weed. The weed, the marijuana. <laughs> oh, but it was a white guy. So he probably got a, a hand slap. Uh, he was recently paroled. <laughs> I think he got, he actually got four, four years for that. In jail? Uh-huh. Me, oh my, oh, I didn't know they locked up white people for that stuff. <laughs> They do, yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Thanks, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he was recently paroled after being locked up. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> this is this. I'm not going to be able to leave this one alone. Anyway, the couple <laughs> married shortly after meeting. Oh, my God, I got locked up for weed. <laughs> uh, so, well, he was smuggling. Okay. I think it was pretty serious, you know. He's, I think he was fly, okay. flying uh, the marijuana from Mexico into into the U.S. So okay, so wow. I, I think it was pretty uh, serious. But and and he only got four years. So there's that. So there is that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> okay. So uh, the couple married shortly after meeting. Then they honeymooned in the Southwest before returning to Nelson's apartment in Costa Mesa. Omaima would later claim that during their short marriage, she suffered sexual abuse by her husband. She said it was only after they married that her husband showed a violent side. On November 28th, Thanksgiving Day, 1991, Omaima claims that Bill sexually assaulted her in Costa Mesa, Calif in their California apartment. Following this, Omaima grabbed a pair of scissors 
and stabbed him repeatedly. She said she then beat him with a clothes iron. Ooh, ouch. And other objects until he died. Yeah. I think one of them was a lamp or something. I don't know. She just like beat him with stuff. Oh, yeah. she. Oh, she, she lost went it. In. Yeah. She, oh, yes, Ma. We, we see you, boo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> After murdering him, she began dismembering his body. She skinned the torso. Oh, Lord. Cooked the decapitated head mm. and fried his hands in oil. Mm. She reportedly castrated him in revenge for his alleged sexual assaults. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Is all that necessary? <laughs> a psychiatrist later testified that Nelson said she put on red shoes, a red hat, and red lipstick before chopping up and cooking her husband's body. She also told the psychiatrist that she ate William Nelson's ribs after cooking them in barbecue sauce. Mm. <laughs> the psychiatrist quoted Nelson as saying, I did his ribs just like in a restaurant. She said she sat at the kitchen table with Bill Nelson's cooked remains and said out loud, it's so sweet. It's so delicious. I like mine tender. Oh, me. Oh, my. Oh, right. She got rid of some of his remains through the garbage disposal, and she also mixed some of them with the leftover Thanksgiving turkey and disposed of them in a trash can. Neighbors said the garbage disposal inside the Costa Mesa apartment seemed to run continuously for the next two days. Yeah, and I also, um, I, I watched, I think it was uh, Snapped. <laughs> Uh, it was an episode on her and uh, one of the neighbors said that the um, disposal was going continuously for days and then um, they think it broke. And at that point, she didn't know what to do with the rest of the body. Oh, okay. 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 So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there you have it. Uh, so now we're going to get to the investigation, arrest and trial. On December 1st, 1991, Omaima went to a friend's house and asked for help in disposing of her husband's body parts. The friend agreed, but called police instead. Police investigating the tip found some of the remains of Bill Nelson inside of his red Corvette. The pieces were wrapped in newspaper and stuffed into a trash bag. More body parts were found inside Nelson's apartment. In a red Corvette. <laughs> Omaima was arrested on suspicion of murder when the coroner's office weighed the accumulated body parts during the autopsy. At least 80 to 100 pounds of Bill Nelson was missing. Oh, my. On December 1st, 1992, exactly a year later, her trial began. During the trial, a psychiatrist testified that she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and that she was probably psychotic at the time of the killing. The doctor added that he had never seen anything so bizarre, so psychotic in his 20 years of practice. Wow, that's yeah. something. Uh, Nelson's defense attorney said abuse from several men, including her husband, triggered the psychotic event. One psychologist said that she often lived in a fantasy world in order to deal with the abuse that she had endured during her life. 
Omaima testified during the trial that at an early age, she had a forced circumcision that caused her much pain growing up and which made sex very painful. When she moved to the U.S., she said she was abused by several men, including Bill Nelson. Before Thanksgiving in 1991, Bill and Omaima took a trip uh, to several states, including Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, I believe this was their honeymoon. And on their way back to California, Nelson claimed her husband abused her and threw her cat out of the window of their car. Yikes. Mm. Nelson claimed he handcuffed her to chairs and sexually abused her. She said she agreed to sex several times a day because she believed that she was in love. She said that her new husband raped and beat her several times, including once when she threatened to leave him. She claimed that Bill Nelson would come, uh, become enraged if she refused his request for kinky, quote unquote, sex that involved bondage and that he would beat her. Uh, quote, he'd say, I paid for you. I'm getting what I paid for, Omaima Nelson recalled. Uh, she said she felt isolated with no one to turn to. Prosecutors, on the other hand claimed that Omaima was probably planning to rob him. Orange County Deputy District Attorney Randy Pulowski argued to the jury that it was Omaima who was the predator. He contended that she had an established pattern of seducing older men, tying them up during sex acts, and robbing them. Uh, I think I've already said, uh, fuck you to Randy <laughs> Pulowski. <laughs> um... Ooh, I'll, I'll, when we get to our takeaways on this one, I'm going in on him. He's getting a read for sure. Um, a previous boyfriend, Robert Hansen, had come forward and told police that that's what she had tried to do to him. He alleged that Omaima had tied him up and demanded money from him at gunpoint. Prosecutors charged Nelson with this crime in conjunction with Bill Nelson's murder. Come on, guys. Yeah, that sounds like a really dumb right. plan to tie somebody up and then... Uh ask for money. He's tied up. <laughs> How's he going to give you money? Right. <laughs> he is tied up. But I also, I, now as a black person, a uh, person of color in the United, I don't trust the justice system for nothing. Right. So this seems like it is a made up story to lock up a woman of color. That's all. Yeah. I'll get into it later. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the prosecutors allege that Omaima went after Bill Nelson for his money. Um, Pulowski argued to jurors that Omaima shackled her husband to a bed during a sex play ruse sometime during Thanksgiving weekend in 1991 and then murdered him in cold blood with scissors before she systematically dissected his body. And there was evidence that Bill Nelson had been shackled at the ankles at some point, as he did have some bruising around his ankles. Hmm. Pulowski said Nelson had a pattern of using sex as a con game. Oh, come on, old whitey. And that her <laughs> games grew increasingly violent over the years. Uh, again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. What's wrong with you white male prosecutors is it's almost impossible for them to imagine that another white guy who looks like them is capable of doing something wrong. And it had to be the brown person. It's all the brown person's fault. Mm -hmm. On uh, January 12, 1993, despite feeling some pity for Omaima, the eight-woman, four-man jury did not entirely believe her claims about her abusive relationship with her husband. Uh, the jury foreman later said that 
some jurors believed Omaima's claims of abuse while others did not. And um, I, so I, I've, I'm from California and um, my impression of Costa Mesa is it is a very also um, mostly white town. Okay. So okay. Um, I think, um, you know, it's great they had an eight woman jury, but were there any people of color yeah. on that jury? Probably yeah. not. I don't know. So this, despite the, the sensational nature of the trial, they tried to focus on the evidence, he said. But jurors were disturbed by evidence presented during the trial, which included tales of bondage, sex games, decapitation, castration, and the allegation of cannibalism. There were also graphic photographs showing the remains of the victim as pieced together by pathologists. That would be pretty hard to look at. Um, I love I love blood and guts. Oh yeah, favorite, that's so. right. You would, I would have you would have been, been all over, over it. it. <laughs> I would have yeah, I would have been like my eyes couldn't get any wider. <laughs> the jury foreman commented that the evidence photos of dismembered body parts will be hard to erase from memory. Uh <laughs> I don't know, that doesn't that just tickles me. Uh the jury <laughs> deliberated six days. <laughs> <laughs> the jury deliberated six days before acquitting Nelson of first degree murder, concluding there was insuff- insufficient evidence to prove the slaying was premeditated. But the jury found her guilty of the lesser offense of second degree murder. She was also convicted of assaulting Robert Hansen in November of 1990, the boyfriend, the previous boyfriend. Um, but jurors acquitted. Oh, yeah, but jurors acquitted her of false imprisonment and attempted robbery. Omaima was sentenced to 28 years to life in prison. So where are they now? Well, Omaima first became eligible for parole in 2006. She sought parole claiming she had found salvation as a born-again Christian and married an older man who has since died. But she was denied parole when commissioners found her unpredictable and a serious threat to public safety. She became eligible again in 2011. At the parole hearing, she said, if I didn't defend my life, I would have been dead. I'm sorry it happened, but I'm glad I lived. She said, I'm sorry I dismembered him. Well, she's speaking her truth, amen. At the parole hearing, Nelson denied eating her husband. She shook her head vehemently and grimaced as she said, I swear to God, I did not eat any part of him. I am not a monster. She was then asked, what was your purpose in cooking him? And she declined to answer. At one time, one of her attorneys said that the reason that she chopped up her husband's body into parts was so that she wouldn't meet him in the afterlife. Uh, because Egyptian myth purportedly claims uh, that that's what will happen. Okay, okay. But that that doesn't explain why she cooked him. No, it does not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nelson said uh, she was not the person she was 20 years ago, a woman who refused to let go of any pain anyone had ever caused her. She said she had looked for love in all of the wrong places. But now I value my integrity and my journey. I have a strong desire to help others, she said. As evidence of change, she cited visits she shared with her deceased latest husband, the man in his 70s, whom she married while in prison. We had three-day conjugal visits, she said. There were knives in the kitchen. He never felt threatened or endangered in any way. I loved him so much. 
Um, I'm just shocked that they have conjugal visits and there's knives in the kitchen. <laughs> it is it is pretty wild, but she had been there a long time. Um, and uh, you know, I, I guess I guess she had proved that she was you know, not uh, anything to to be concerned with. By the way, if you want to know more about conjugal visits in prison, there's a really good podcast called um, Ear Hustle, produced by prisoners at San Quentin. Oh, wow. And they talk about their conjugal visits and what it takes to get them. Um, and uh it's it's fast it's fascinating but i thought of it i thought of that 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 show when i when i was reading this part of um the story. her story yeah. um but if, i mean it doesn't matter what you did as long as you're good enough in prison for a long enough amount of time you get that privilege oh wow so what's it called again ear hustle it's called ear hustle okay and it's produced by um the prisoners at san quentin they cool. interview prisoners. There's a there's the the host is a prisoner. It's it's fucking awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna have to um, listen so check to that, that one. Anyway, yeah, it's really good. So uh, she was denied by the parole board again. She was denied parole partly because, according to Pulowski, remember my favorite person in the story <laughs> she shows no remorse. She takes no responsibility for her actions and still blames the victim. All right, buddy. <laughs> The parole board also cited that she would not be a productive citizen if she were freed. According to the DA's office, Omaima failed to complete any educational or vocational classes while incarcerated and has failed to abide by prison rules. Fair enough. Fair enough, but I don't believe it. She is currently <laughs> serving life. <laughs> don't believe one second of it. <laughs> I think they're just they're I I. I just don't want to let her out. I just don't want her out. Um, She harmed one of them, you know, old uh, old Whitey. And she just is, they just can't have it. That's all. Right. So, um, hey, and I love old Whitey. My husband, (laughs) what's his face? Old Whitey. Old Whitey, get (laughs) off my lawn, mister. (laughs) I love that guy to death. (laughs) But I just think that sometimes some white guys have blind spots. And uh, I just think that sometimes it's hard for them to see the humanity or the plight of other people who, who don't look like them. Um, so anyway, she is currently serving a life sentence at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California, and she will not be able to seek parole again until 2026. So uh, now we're going to talk about what we think made her snap. Now, me, my opinion, there is only so much one woman can take. All right. Sometimes a man will court the shit out of you in the beginning. And it's not until later that he reveals himself to be something completely different. And, uh, you know, maybe there weren't any signs that you noticed beforehand. Plus she suffered, she suffered abuse her whole life and she used all of her assets to survive. Uh, Pulowski, uh, and maybe the mistreatment was tolerable for her at first. She was just trying to survive. Uh, and for her, maybe it was okay to endure abuse, a little abuse here and there. Um, but then eventually, maybe it just wasn't okay anymore. And she snapped. I'm not saying it's okay to kill somebody. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think that's why that's, she snapped. That's it. Yeah. Um, it seems like the abuse in her early life just wrecked her. Um, it's, mm-hmm. And it's hard to say exactly what happened. 
Her husband's not alive to tell his side of the story. Um, but the fact that they mm. knew each other for such a short period of time is telling. They literally did not even know each other. Um, and different mm -hmm. articles div give different time spans for the courtship and marriage. Some said they married within days. Others said they married after weeks of meeting. Um, and I could not find the date that they did marry. Uh, but it was a short period of time. And they all said mm -hmm. that they met in October and she killed him on Thanksgiving Day. So at the most, they knew each other for two months. And it's impossible mm -hmm. to really know somebody in two months. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the beginning of the episode, uh, we talked about the Wari tribe that practiced two forms of cannibalism, one in war warfare and the other for funerals. Um, and the one for revenge, um, I think, uh, was the form of cannibalism that Omaima mm -hmm. uh, partook in. Um, because yes. I, I don't know how bad the abuse from Bill was, uh, but her actions were probably more about seeking revenge on all of the people who were, who abused her during her life, not just him. And like you said, you know, there's only so much a woman can take and then, uh, they can't anymore and they just snap. And I think that, yeah, that was it. And then, um, she was just pissed. <laughs> I mean, done. that's that's man th I'm to put not, it mildly. I am not fucking with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then just <laughs> all right, that's it. <laughs> and the story where she's talking about um, how she's sitting at the table and talking about <laughs> that's it. Sorry, <laughs> and she's she's eating his body and saying, mm, this is so sweet. You know, just like talking to mm -hmm. him at mm -hmm. the same time. Like, look at you now. <laughs> yeah. What are you, what are you going to say you gonna now? Do Bill? now? This is so Bill? good, Bill. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. Do you, you have, <laughs> it is, <laughs> but, but I think that's what probably what was going, what you got to say now, Bill? <laughs> probably what was going through her mind. She was like, fuck you. I'm going to, I'm going to eat you for Thanksgiving dinner. Oh my gosh. And the fact that she put on her reddest outfit, yeah, red shoes, <laughs> red hat, red outfit. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I wonder if her nails are red too. I mean, that, that is, somebody needs to make a movie out of this. Are you listening, Hollywood? <laughs> so uh, now we're going to get into what, what Beth and I took away from the story. And I'll start just because that's that's just the way it's going to be today. <laughs> so this is a long one. Uh, <laughs> it is interesting to me because the media and entertainment in general, when they describe women of color and their bodies, they, it's always food related. Chocolate skin, chocolate eyes, onion booty, caramel skin, olive skin, ham hocks for thighs. Ooh, she she tasted so sweet like yams with syrup. Uh, and Omaima took all of those and in a very sick, sadistic way, <laughs> turned it around on a white person. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, you know, I never, I never really thought about that. Uh, but that's true. Yeah. Oh, it is. It. I mean, just just, I don't know, watch a movie, read a book. <laughs> Somebody who doesn't have white skin. Well, I guess sometimes they describe wh white women's skin as like milky. 
Yeah. Right? Or like tapioca. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Ivory. Ivory. Peach, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> peach. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that one. Peaches. But yeah, like peaches women's, and cream. women's bodies are. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> peaches and cream. I love that song. Um, But yeah, uh, our, so our, our bodies are always described as like food and women so like (laughs) we're not food we're people (laughs) but uh anyway so i he he, she just literally turned that on its head (laughs) she did um but it all she sure did she showed it it also bugs the shit out of me how this prosecutor went after her as a con for using her sexuality the pot the prosecutor uh i don't know his first name but trash ass palowska literally was incapable of seeing omaima as a victim Again, he only saw the white guy that that she killed, a white guy like himself as the victim. But there's there's two in this story, and um, she was the victim of domestic domestic violence. At least she said she was, but she wasn't treated like one. Where was the fucking rape kit? Unfortunately, marital rape was not illegal until 1993. So maybe she missed out on using that as a legal argument at her trial. Um, it's hard to say, but I think about what I would do in her posi- in her position and nothing against old whitey. Again, my husband, my husband is again, old whitey, Mr. Get off my lawn. He's one of the good ones, but I have a, a history of dating older white men. And in my late teens and early twenties, I dated women too. Um, and some of them were not kind to me, including verbal and physical abuse. I had uh, one guy who um, would um, punch me and he would say, it's okay. Your skin's uh, dark and nobody will be able to see the uh, bruises. Um, I had another guy who used to call me nigglet, uh, which is, I'm going to put it together for you. I hate saying this word, but nigger plus piglet. Okay. That's terrible. Um, but I was just so thank you I was so happy that somebody was paying attention to me and buying me things and taking me out and essentially like supporting me financially um you can call that whatever you want but uh, to me it felt good um and okay enough um at, at the time but I didn't know my worth and I didn't know I didn't realize how wrong it was and maybe again for Miss Omaima it was okay for her for a while, but no one should have to endure that kind of abuse, sexual or otherwise, in any relationship. So I think I think it was just too much at some point. Yeah, and yeah. you have to remember she was only 23 years old, you know? Exactly. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I want to say the human brain is not mature until you're like 25. So she was still, her oh, brain well, was still growing, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I just wanted to say that abusers often move in really fast and do something called love bombing, uh, giving someone lots of attention and affection as a way of gaining influence over them. It can look like at the beginning of a relationship often does when two people are infatuated mm-hmm. with each other, but it's usually more intense and it goes a lot faster. And this relationship Oh, my man, Bill's relationship was really fast. Light years. Yeah, yeah very fast. Light, love bomb sounds good, though. It does. It <laughs> they does. should have a worse, somebody to come up with a, a word, that, a phrase that doesn't sound so good. Love bomb. <laughs> there's, there's two different forms of, of love bombing. And one of them is good and, and the other is bad. So this is the bad one. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. 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 So one of Thank the you. signs of love bombing in the start of a relationship is a lot of ten- of attention in a short period of time. Uh, declarations of love within days of meeting. Um, he showers you with affection, gifts, promises for the future, says things like, when we get married and uh, pressures for commitment, mm. all within a relatively short period of time, like weeks, days. Um, mm-hmm. The relationship later becomes abusive once he's hooked you. It's like he blinds you with all of this attention and then you get hooked. Mm-hmm. And then oh, he becomes abusive. And the fact that their relationship happened so fast makes me believe that there probably was some abuse going on. Um, on the other hand, mm-hmm. that doesn't, like you said, it doesn't justify what Omaima did. And mm-hmm. um, it sounds like from the parole hearing that she hasn't done much in the way of introspection or self-improvement during her time of incarceration, um, which, you know, you don't believe, but... <laughs> but that's what it sounds like and uh, what she really well she found jesus yeah she did find jesus (laughs) but she she really needs psychological help and unfortunately i don't think she's gonna get that in prison so i don't know if not in american prison yeah so i don't know if she would do much introspection or self-improvement uh without that kind of help so that's my takeaway. I'll tell you one thing. When she does get out and the book gets published <laughs> about what really happened, <laughs> I, I will be buying it. <laughs> uh, so... If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> uh, so this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. But in my mind, this is not meant to blame the victim. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips and I'm going to go first. And I just wanted to mention the love bombing again. Uh, Be wary of men or women who come on too strong and want to go too fast. Take the time to get to know someone before committing to a relationship. My personal opinion is that it takes at least six months to even start to know someone before the facade starts to slip. Uh, We all have a facade. That's right. We all want to put our best foot forward. And it just takes a while to Mm -hmm. get past that. It just does. So It does. And um, (laughs) I wish I had really understood i wish i'd even heard the term love bombing when i was 18 yeah um i didn't start dating until i was 18 and uh <laughs> i was in a fucking minefield of love bombs <laughs> so it just uh you you don't know the game and, and yeah. until you actually get into it and and knowing ahead of time what to look for 
uh, and and to be patient and to wait that six months is Im- important for your safety. Yeah, <laughs> and, really. and it feels really good when somebody's giving you that much attention and and uh, wanting to commit to you. It's like, oh my God, we're soulmates. I, I'm so in love, you know. And it's it, it's just overwhelming, <laughs> yeah. and and your brain just goes out the window, you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh, it is. It's a miracle. I am still alive. Me too. Me too, Wendy. <laughs> so um, I don't have any tips, but the topics discussed in this episode got me thinking a lot about domestic violence and mental health. So I would just like to remind everybody to be well and seek help. Nobody suffer in silence um, for either of those issues. And um, we've... Uh, uh, we've gone kind of long in this episode. So I'll link up some domestic violence and mental health resources in the show notes. All right. All right. So now we're going to get into some crime news, serial killer or crime news. What do you got, Beth? All right. So there's an update on the Long Island serial killer case. Real quick, if you don't know anything about it, a 24-year-old sex worker named Shannon Gilbert disappeared under some really odd circumstances in 2010. She went out to Long Island for a job. She had a driver who waited for her outside of the house. But at some point, the John came out to get the driver and said that he couldn't get Shannon to leave. The driver came into the house and Shannon basically, uh, according to him, uh, she was basically freaking out and hiding behind a couch. She was on the phone to 911 and telling them that they were trying to kill her. Then she got outside and ran off. She just ran away. And uh, Uh when the police were notified that she was a missing person because they couldn't find her, uh, they began looking for her and they, they didn't find her, but they did find 10 other bodies on a long Island (gasps) beach. It was a, Oh yeah. Gilgo beach. Um, And of course they think it might be the work of a serial killer. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god and they did wow. eventually find shannon's body too about a year later and there's uh they don't know if she was a victim of homicide or if she uh where she was found was like in a marshy area so they think maybe she ran mm-hmm. in there and and just died but uh her mm-hmm. her family doesn't think so but in any case uh the police never released uh, the 911 call that Shannon made. And just recently, a judge ordered that the 23 minute long 911 call has to be released. Minutes. Yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. And I've, I've always wanted to know what was on that call. And I don't know if I want to listen to it. Maybe I do. I don't know. But speak for yourself. <laughs> I, do, I do. I do want to read the transcript for sure. I want to know what's on it. Oh, yes, I do. I had not, I had not heard of this case at all. At all? No. Is Shannon a woman of color or is she? Um, I think she was know? white. Okay. Just wondering. Yeah, I don't. Um, I think that, but all the victims uh, were sex workers, I believe, um, except for one, oh, which man. was a toddler. Okay. <gasps> no, stop. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Wow. I, I have not heard of one inch, inch of, of this it, huh? case, um, but I'm really intrigued. It, it happened in so Shannon Long Gilbert. Island. What part of 
Long Island. Yeah. Long Island. Okay. Long Island. Okay. Yeah, it's the well, call. They call it the Long Island serial killer. Um. So yeah, um, and there was a couple okay. of episodes on, I don't know, Forty Eight Hours or Dateline, one of those shows, and that's that's where I saw the story. Oh, okay. That's wow. That's crazy. Um, so I saw this on the news, uh, but a listener was also kind enough to share it in our Facebook discussion group. So thank you, Brother Marcus. Uh, what the fuck indeed? <laughs> he he shared his caption was what the fuck. So I say what the fuck indeed. Um, the headline reads, elderly black man confesses to being serial killer responsible for 90 deaths. The article link is in our Facebook group and we will also share it in our footnotes. But Little, uh, this gentleman, Mr. Little, is a man from Texas. He was indicted uh, in Texas for the murder of a woman in 1994. Mr. Little is 78 years old, but provided details to more than 90 deaths dating back to the 1970s. So uh, you FBI profilers who still don't believe that black guys can be serial killers. huh? <laughs> uh, Little is linked. So far, he's linked to 30 cases. Um, but if his claims are true, he would be one of the most prolific serial killers in the U.S. Um, and we might need to add him to the list. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but uh, for sure. But there's this there's this guy who NBC has on every time there's a serial killer. His last name is like Van Zant. Oh, yeah. And uh, he might have been former FBI profiler, but he was like, come on, guys, 90. It, I mean, he was like, he was just doubting that the it number. was even possible yeah. for this to be a serial killer. And that may be true, but I just want him to know that that kind of seems racist. Yeah. Yeah. So his, his take on the fact that a black guy is not um, capable of the prolific murderers that um, the uh, normally white guys are seems racist to me. That's all. Yep. Yep. I agree. So now we're going to get into our uh, part of the show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I wanted to tell you guys about a show that I love. I fucked with it. It's the champs with Neil Brennan and Mo Moshe Kasher. Now hear me out. Moshe is a Jewish guy and Neil Brennan is a white guy. He's the white guy who was behind half baked and the Chappelle show. Um, they are both comedians. Um, there are no new episodes, but they created the podcast to talk only to black people because they got into podcasting and realized there was a shortage of podcasts about people of color or by people of color, just as we Fruit Loops have noticed. Yep. Um, so these guys created the show to fill that void. Podcasting is still full of so mm -hmm. many white <laughs> guys. <laughs> wall to wall white dudes. <laughs> Wall to wall. I don't need any more. Thank you. I'm full. <laughs> the champs is different. Now, these two white guys are very well versed in black culture and hip hop culture and um, interested in learning more. So listeners can learn along with them. And they are so fucking funny. And if you don't know much about black culture, it's a good place for you to start. And also to hear how two white guys have conversations with people of color about race, culture, and their experiences while laughing your ass off. So uh, my shout out is to the champs. All right. So my shout out, uh, true crime goody, um, Dirty John, mm -hmm. which we've mentioned before, uh, podcast, 
Um, well, they made a mini series out of it, and it's premiering on Sunday, November twenty fifth on Bravo. And I don't have cable, but I'm gonna find some way to watch it. I'm gonna have to download it from somewhere. <laughs> the podcast was so good. I recommend listening to the podcast yeah. either before or after you watch the mini series. I don't care, but you have to watch both, <laughs> or you have to listen to the podcast and watch the mini series. <laughs> You got it. <laughs> Just do it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So um, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App, which you can download to your phone, or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. That's right. Thank you, everybody. Um, so thank you for rocking with us. Um, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. 
a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. <laughs>